0: Only the brave-hearted dare to listen. If a path to the better there be, it begins with a full look at the worst. We are at the, our fate. the disintegration of empire. Shake ourselves awake. Welcome to Post Doom, Regenerative Conversations Exploring Overshoot Grief, Grounding, and Gratitude. I'm your host, Michael Dowd. In this conversation, recorded in November of 2019, I speak with one of my dearest friends and colleagues, a cherished brother on this path, Terry Patton. We title this Light on the Other Side there are three previews. Preview
1: one. I'm not interested in this flimsy hopefulness on this side of that dark night journey. I've gone through and continue to go through this dark night journey, and it's a kind of faith and hope and just recognition of the beauty of life and of every moment, certainly of the natural world, but just of existence itself even, even more fundamentally. And that that light on the other side of the darkness is so different, like let's not confuse them. And, and in resisting a, an absolute stasis in the darkness, yes, I agree with that, but we've got to go there first. Yeah. Let's honor the people who are at least helping people break out of this culture of denial, which is so pervasive, and which is what makes us all so lonely. We all feel like little outliers who have been willing to face reality. And we need more fellowship among people who are actually taking seriously our moral responsibility to the future of life. Preview two. This is calling on us to go beyond where we've ever been able to go. This is asking me to change, and it's even asking me to ask you to change. Mm -hmm. And it's asking me to ask you to change so that we, as beautiful as we can be, can become something we've never been, and become a catalyst for something that has never happened before. So that every conversation is an offering, a prayer into that mysterious source of evolutionary emergence you know, please make me a vehicle for your grace that I might go past what I know, that we might go past what we know. Preview three. Maybe that weed doesn't get to live much longer, but does it, does it have seeds of something that can give birth to some new possibility for the future of life? I, I am a product of that process oh Oh. and and i want you know i've had the privilege of all that education and all that time in the deep spiritual practice and all the intellectual you know I, i i'm inheriting the conversations among all the spiritual traditions and science and all of all of that intelligence is is present now can can it synergize in in me and in my friendships and my relating such that something actually new manifests from it and it actually isn't wasted? Is this not just ugly? Even if it's very ugly in many ways, is it also perhaps beautiful? I don't want to be the one who knows so much that he cuts across all the possibilities.
0: The conversation begins. Well, Brother Terry, it's been a long time since we've had a face-to-face, or the last time we were together live, I think we took a hike at Ghost Ranch a few years ago.
1: It's been that long,
0: wow. I I know, I know. And so this conversation series is very different than the one I did, what, four or five years ago, The Future is Calling Us to Greatness. Um, I've encountered William Catton's overshoot since then. I I got some of the severity of the predicament that we're in, and I am a lot less optimistic that Uh, In fact, I have no optimism that we can turn things around technologically or economically, but I'm just as inspired and just as on purpose as ever. And um, I'm just honored to be able to have these post-doom conversations uh, with a whole variety of friends and colleagues. And, uh, And I specifically wanted you because you are the person within the integral community. Not only are you a dear friend, but you're the the person in the integral community specifically that has, in my estimation and Connie's estimation, the greenest heart. Um, And so people who may not be familiar with you, maybe they've not uh, traveled in the kind of spiritual circles or the integral circles that you have, um, help them help us get you like like share a little bit about what you're up to what you're about like who you are in the world what you bring to the world for people who uh, are not yet familiar uh, with you and your work uh, obviously mentioned uh, your books including your most recent one Um, and then anything you want to say about what you're most concerned about or passionate about these days
1: well you know uh, I grew up uh in a place called the York Center Community Co-op. My parents moved there when I was six. So it was a 70 family, uh, interracial, uh, pacifistic uh, community associated with the Church of the Brethren, one of the peace churches. And I happened to just be precocious and interested in what adults were interested in and managed to have a whole cluster of, of, of important mentors who were, radicals. And so I really was kind of raised to be a stand uh, for social justice. It was racial justice and peace that were really the fo- focus of everybody's attention back then. And mm-hmm. And then I began to realize that I, I had to become a different kind of being if I was going to make the difference. The revolution had to start with me and that drew me into the human potential movement and then to the ashram where I spent the first half of my adult life. Mm-hmm. And that was mind-blowing, reformatted the hard drive, really woke me up to the living presence of the sacred in mm-hmm. a profound way. But of course, it was more about the subjective transformation, and it did not loop back into the social responsibility. I also wanted it not to be cultic, you know, the, the, the ashram was cultic and And so I found my way into uh, working with Ken Wilber and, uh, and and this was actually a pretty exciting time in the, in the early 2000s. His philosophy was striking a chord with people all over the world. There were communities almost, you know, I don't know, 40 countries, there were integral communities and there was a combination of some a, a, attention to deep spiritual truth and to the potential of evolving consciousness to a new place and idealistic possibilities that were coming out of that. Mm-hmm. So I helped develop a practice based on that philosophy, integral life practice, and I was the senior writer of the, the book by that title. But of course, after a while, I began to see that the integral community wasn't as a whole appreciating the human predicament nearly enough, idealism about what we could evolve to, and the optimism and the positivity about what evolution could bring, were, I thought, blinding people to the dilemma that, you know, I had had known that something was off and that a moral and ethical and, you know, that a transformation was necessary, just intuitively from Mm -hmm. my earliest Life. But the profundity of our civilizational predicament, our ecological predicament, uh, began to dawn on me, and my work just took a different turn. And you played a part in that that was important. I began working on a book that was essentially a more political book or a book about social, the social, the bringing together of awakening and wokeness, you might say, and end of a different level of brother-sisterhood, a different mm-hmm. kind of human communicating, a dropping into our connections to one another. But that evolved quite a lot, and then uh, the book I wrote on practice was called Integral Life Practice that came out about 10 or 12 years ago, and now my most recent book from last year, A New Republic of the Heart, with the subtitle An Ethos for Revolutionaries expresses a a positive orientation uh, but a very sobered one the way Mm -hmm. i often speak about it is for us to be as serious as our situation requires the transformation of our very being Mm -hmm. and in order to do that we have to get into touch with the inherent goodness and beauty and miracle of every moment and get in touch with a deeper happiness, a deeper well-being, out of which we can face what would otherwise utterly break our hearts and destroy us. Yes. So you know, my one my one liner on my emails is things are far too serious for us to lose our sense of humor. Uh, so I have been orienting positively, and and in a way, I haven't been. You know, I'm probably the person you're. Talking to in this series who is maybe least fully signed up for doom uh, I, I I to me it's a really important to stay very epistemically humble and to really know that I don't know no one can know what the future will bring the future is emergent there have been incidents of emergence just in biological evolution throughout that trajectory of the great story. And emergence is a miracle. And in this existential moment, miracles are possible. So my my focus began to be on, how can I make myself a a vessel through which emergence might take place? Mm -hmm. And yet, the human psychology is a sneaky and insidious thing, and, it, and we live in a culture that is all about denial and denialism, and, and it reinforces it so powerfully. So this positive orientation easily slips into subtle denial in me and everyone. And, uh, and so my process of reckoning with what is real will never end. I'm, I'm continuing to reckon, I'm continuing to be humbled, and I continue to be a catalyst for other people to awaken from different kinds of sleep. But I, mm-hmm. but I honestly do feel, and I hope, I hope this will be a helpful communication, a helpful resource for some of the folks paying attention here, that some deep not knowing in our heart, a deep Space for possibility is just profoundly profoundly healthy, and our certainty of i'm certain that the crazy growth word trajectory of the human civilizational experiment is going to be punctuated <laughs> <laughs> yes you know it is not just going to continue i'm pretty certain of that that seems self evident i think everybody in this conversation, but how that will take place yes. anyway, the the doom, or collapse, or societal breakdown, or extinction, or whatever extents we take it to, and how that happens, and what beauty accompanies the interruptions, and what uh, positive, creative engagement. I I feel very interested in that, very uh, uncertain of of, of how this will play out. That that Matt distinguished me a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, well, I
0: suspect, and, and nonetheless, I still wanted to invite you to be part of this series, um, uh, even though I'm, I don't know that language of post-doom quite works for you, or th- that you would see yourself in that. Certainly by doom, what we're trying to get at simply is most of us who grew up in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, 80s, um, had a sense of perpetual progress, and our sense of evolution was quite linear, quite human-centered, most of us um, quite techno-optimist and high energy, um, yeah. high intense use of energy. And for most of us, if not all of us in this uh, particular series, um, at some point, we realized that was not the most likely unfolding. In fact, some of us came to believe it was, you know, thermodynamically Absolutely impossible. not going to
1: happen. I, yeah. <laughs> I'm, 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 no, no. That's why we're right. You know, like, exactly. I'm not, I'm not, uh, uh, Meaning to, ch- in fact, people have a great deal of kinship, not just with you personally, but with many of the people, oh, on the Deep Adaptation Forum, for example, or in in other contexts, because the vulnerability and humanity with which people are reckoning with what Sean Chamberlain called the the story I will tell with my life, I guess. Yes, yes. This is this is my inquiry too. And I feel that there's a, a, a moral uh, choice and an intellectual integrity that are drawing people to this, you know, toward the collapsitarian perspective. And in a way, I have more in common with people who are accepting that orientation than with people who are still, in effect, in the bargaining phase. Yes. Of, of of dealing with reality. We have to be interrupted, and we have to continue to be interrupted. Mm. Whatever way we cope after having let ourselves be crushed and gone through, it's still provisional, because this is an emergent process for us, and our ability to be changed and deepened and connected to one another and. And for us to find ways to be a resource for one another, there's so so much is is going to reveal new layers. Yeah. Yeah. One of
0: the things I so love and appreciate and honor and respect you for is that over the years, as I've introduced you to various authors that have been particularly educational or inspiring or helpful or you know sobering or whatever. Um, you've often taken the time to actually listen or read and then dialogue, um, including some of John Michael Greer's stuff, including William Catton's Overshoot, which as you know, I consider the most important book I've ever read. And for me, post-doom is about like moving beyond denial. um, uh, There's no problems here or, you know, technology in the market's going to save our asses. But it's also just as much beyond the doom and gloom, collapse, collapsitarian in a negative, uh, cynical, um, almost misanthropic sense. It really is looking beyond that and saying, you what know, Royce Granton's book, the title of his New York Times bestselling book says it well, we're doomed. Now what? You know, I mean like, okay, to use William Catton's language, the extinction of Homo Colossus is inevitable and exactly. necessary. That yeah. doesn't necessarily mean the extinction of Homo sapiens nor the human experiment and what could emerge as a result of this catastrophic collapse of anthropocentrism. So who knows? Uh, I like your, epist- uh, your epistemic uh, humility, your call that you, that you consistently uh, call for um, uh, uh, against, prematurely standing in certainty and um, solidly standing in uncertainty, um, except around, you know, things for which the evidence is, is so well, compelling.
1: We, yes, exactly. We can't be asking whether the world is round or flat or something. <laughs> <Right>. let, <laughs> let's not that silly. Uh, it, it is such a profound voyage to let go of the certainty of the, of a future like we knew. Like you have to give up. Like I thought I was writing books that might have some significance in posterity. Ha, posterity, what's that? We tend to think that our kids and grandkids will live on from here in a world like ours and, and with, with the possibility of remembering or being grateful to something, you know, forget it. It, the, 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 they will have to have an adventure so different from our own. Yes, yes. And, 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 and to let yourself grieve the hardships that, you know, in anticipation that, that they will endure, all of that. It, it is a crushing of so many of the sources of meaning that we have had. And I think, and here's where I'm going to offer a bit of a challenge, I think that in the face of letting go of the old narrative, it's comparatively comforting to think you know that the new narrative is, that there's something knowable about the new narrative. And I think to stand in the presence of, oh, it won't be like I thought it was, something is doomed. And yet there will be a future created, partly, perhaps, we don't know, some technological breakthroughs that will interact with new ecological relocalization, uh, you know, intentional community, permaculture, et cetera, et cetera, experiments that will interact with perhaps some really profound breakthroughs in consciousness and relationship coming out of the spiritual traditions. You know, my old series I called Beyond Awakening, because I was no longer interested in subjective awakening, but I was interested in what that awakening could be in, in, in an enactment.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And
1: so to even not know that we are doomed, so to speak, to not even know that is perhaps even harder, and maybe even uh, a goad to a deeper, more radical Uh, humility and, you know, epistemic humility, and, and the kind of willingness that, you know, part of it is about just becoming congruent with your values in a more tangible way, but part of it is that perhaps there are some opportunities for, I don't know, you know, these words are too overblown, but you know, the little measures that are toward heroism or sainthood or, you know, where where something holier or truer might become possible and that we might contribute to that incredible, beautiful resurgence of, of life so that human beings, instead of being this horrific, destructive force on the body of life, might begin to become the caretakers and gardeners for a, a at least a, a less impoverished biodiversity going forward
0: yeah yeah
1: well I, I
0: like some of what you're sharing a lot and uh certainly the call to heroism the call to self-sacrifice the call to sainthood i mean in difficult times that's when the heroes and saints um, uh, are born it seems to me um, uh, i tend to i tend to focus as as i think you know on what can be said and and stood upon that we can say with enough uh collective intelligence uh, a diversity of perspective diversity of religious philosophical uh ethnic gender everything else perspective that we can say with certainty these things are inevitable it's kind of like the sun will continue to go around the Milky Way. The, are, you know, there are certain things that are physically inevitable, and for me, ecology really is the new theology. And so, for me, uh, part of what I am not willing to be epistemically humble about, because I think it's diluted, is that uh, any species needs to live within the carrying capacity of of the ecosystems that support it. And so. Um, how do we thrive within a, within the context of knowing that human population will uh, once again uh, be at or below uh, carrying capacity at some point in the in the not too distant future? Um, how can we regain the kinds of intimate relationship to the to the ancestors and to the descendants that should humans survive this bottleneck, um, that we once again reclaim, reown, re, uh, are invigorated by that intimate relationship with time. And frankly, that relationship with the living world as a greater thou, not a lesser it. So there are certain things, it seems to me that as I read human history, and as I read the rise and fall of unsustainable civilizations that distinguish that from pro-future sustainable cultures, there are some things that we can say with with strong confidence that there will not be a human presence that survives into the future much longer if it doesn't regain that relationship with primary reality as primary, that it's not all about us, it's not all about humans, and that, that we, if we don't regain that sense of intimate rapport with both time and space. But, well. Terry, I want to I want to invite you to go a little deeper into your story of how you I mean, you've touched on it already, but um, how have you grappled with emotionally uh, coming to terms with these challenging this challenging information around climate and overshoot and ecological scarcity and peak oil, all the rest of it. I mean, as you as you so brilliantly, I mean, your Google presentation was fabulous. you also mentioned, uh, uh, for anybody watching or listening to this conversation, you also mentioned the Deep Adaptation Forum. So, say a little bit about sort of your experience of, of Jim Bendel and that Deep Adaptation Forum, because um, some people may not know what it is that you're you were referring to
1: there. I think you'll be interviewing Jim, and he I will be.
0: Yeah,
1: uh, he wrote a a paper that went totally viral, in which he as a professor of sustainability, sustainable business, uh, said, look, I'm tired of pretending. There's going to be near-term societal collapse, and let's have an honest conversation about that. And in bringing that forward, he did it in a very mature, emotionally connected way, in which the shock, and the grief, and the confusion, and the the stages of grieving, the anger, what is it, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance sequences, but, you know, those happen sometimes many times in a single day, (laughs) and and, and also are across an arc of time. Exactly. Uh, he, he, uh, He opened up a space in which an awful lot of heartfelt sharing began to take place, in which a kind of curiosity, and openness, and depth, and humility began to take place. A lot of beauty began to open up in that space. I, uh, I immediately, uh, pointed out the ways in which I disagreed with that, because of course, I'm, I'm into the not knowing. I don't think we know exactly how this goes, and Uh, There are scenarios in which contraction of human populations and a great hospice project can be a heck of a lot more benign and less benign, and there can be a great deal of soul restoration in the process of some of those changes, and they can coincide with Perhaps much more rap- ra- much more rapid and radical sociocultural transformation, and hopefully some transformative technological contributions toward a sustainable human presence on the planet so my uh, my feeling was that that I didn't want to say, "Oh, come on, let's stop pretending we don't know that we're just headed for collapse like that that knowledge. I I didn't agree with. And then I saw my friend Jeremy Lent uh, kind of uh, point out many of the points I had made uh, about about Jen's uh, thesis, arguing also, and and, and importantly, that our beliefs can easily become self-fulfilling prophecies, and that a belief in collapse, could easily help bring about collapse. That 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 a, that a complete abandonment of any uh, imagining that we can be participating in something transformative is is actually a moral problem. And 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 so Jeremy made those points very pointedly. And 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 they had a, a, I think a mutually respectful and deep and and you know there's a lot to love about both the perspectives that Jem and Jeremy expressed in their back and forth.
0: Yeah. And just for the note, I mean, I recorded all of those. I recorded the back and forth and, and I also recorded Sean Chamberlain's um, plea to actually, he found great value in both.
1: Yeah. As do I. And, and that was what I pointed out to Jeremy. I uh, had a public conversation with him as a part of the uh, service space community uh uh, awaken calls. And what I said to Jeremy is, well, Jeremy, it's true. I, you know, I agree with you that the future is emergent. I agree with you that we don't want to make our presumptions a self-fulfilling prophecy. But don't we all know that the current trajectory is going to be interrupted? And isn't that a shock to all of us who have been socialized into this belief in the progress scenario? And doesn't that break our hearts and open us up? And don't we need to drop into a conversation with one another in which that, uh, emotional processing is, is done in community and isn't, and, 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 and others, you know, aren't, aren't they doing something really important by beginning this conversation in this way? And maybe we enter into that conversation and we, nudge back against too much certainty about collapse or doom. Maybe we ask people to be a little more epistemically humble. Maybe we don't agree with everything they're presuming. But there are brothers and sisters in an honest, heartfelt reckoning with reality. I, I don't want to push them away as if, I mean, they're doing a piece of the work that's absolutely necessary. And in way or more my brothers and sisters in the work I'm doing then people who are, yes, agreeing with us about the possibility of some transformation, yes, we, but very often that's a a set of ideas that are really masking a deeper denial and refusal to reckon fully. And don't we want to reckon fully? And and I'm not interested in this flimsy hopefulness on this side of that dark night journey. I've gone through and continue to go through this dark night journey. And it's a kind of faith and hope and just recognition of the beauty of life and of every moment, certainly of the natural world, but just of existence itself even, even more fundamentally. And that that light on the other side of the darkness is so different. Like, let's not confuse them. And, and in resisting uh, an absolute stasis in the darkness, yes, I agree with that, but we've got to go there 1st Yeah, Let's honor the people who are at least helping people break out of this culture of denial, which is so pervasive, and which is what makes us all so lonely. We all feel like little outliers who have been willing to face reality, and we need more fellowship among people who are actually taking seriously our moral responsibility to the future of life. And I think that the, the conversations that are being had are of different natures. Like to me, I, now, I still consider what I'm doing to be in a certain way integral. It's integral in the sense, I think this is a, a call for my, a transformation of my consciousness and my being. That, that that the same willingness to go through a revolution in consciousness that was the work in the ashram continues and our collective predicament is another deepening and quickening of even yet other dimensions of personal transformation. So there's inner work and deep and continuing inner work. But That has to be connected to outer work. We have to do what we can do to help. And we have to be willing to change our lifestyles. We have to be willing to question everything, and we have to bring that into action. And I bring in also what I call the interwork, the interpersonal Mm -hmm. work. Because the metaphor I use is that all of this has handed us an impossible Zen riddle, a koan, an impossible question that is infinitely deep, that stops your consciousness, that puts you in a a position of just being stopped and then being transformed by having been confounded, just like a koan. And that koan, you discover the, the, the great Roshi, the great giver of this koan, life itself, is not satisfied with my response to the koan, no matter what it is. It needs our response to the call-on. It is something, something has to be forged in our relationships with one another. I like and the that. Shifts, and the shifts in our ways of being personally are prelude to anything better in our relationships. So that you're a beautiful man. I love you. you I have no objections to how you show up in my relationship with you. But you know what? This is calling on us to go beyond where we've ever been able to go. This is asking me to change, and it's even asking me to ask you to change. Mm -hmm. And it's asking me to ask you to change so that we, as beautiful as we can be, can become something we've never been and become a catalyst for something that has never happened before. So that every conversation is an offering, a prayer into that, Mysterious source of evolutionary emergence, you know, please make me a vehicle for your grace that I might go past what I know, that we might go past what we know. You know, that's where I, you know, find that interwork. And then the interwork is an anchor for you to challenge me to make some practical lifestyle change and some change in consciousness back and forth, each of us challenging and supporting each other in being our best, really self-compassionate, really other compassionate, but not cutting ourselves slack to be mediocre. This is a time, you know, the future is calling us to whatever greatness is possible. Mm -hmm. It really is. And it's calling, calling us. Yeah. Not to a blame game, not to a, a make, a make wrong, even in the midst of so much that's so wrong. So, so what is possible? Like, I, I'm really interested in that. I'm interested in conversations where the whole feeling quality shifts, where the broken heart and the resurgent joy and, 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 and the open awareness, are all kind of becoming uh, collectively kind of a strange attractor for new ways of being human. The ways of being human to which we were raised and to which we're adapted are not it. But, But I, like look, the story of evolution has its own innate intelligence. And if it has manifested this juggernaut of exuberant, consumption and all, all, all of the absurd wasteful, but still, uh, in some ways, you know, a privilege. Like, can something come out of that? Can that, maybe that weed doesn't get to live much longer, but does it, does it have seeds of something that can give birth to some new possibility for the future of life? I, I am a product of that process, oh. Oh. and and I want you know I've had the privilege of all that education and all that time in the deep spiritual practice and all the intellectual you know I, I I'm inheriting the conversations among all the spiritual traditions and science and all of, all of that intelligence is is present now. Can can it synergize in in me and in my friendships, in my relating, such that something actually new manifests from it and it actually isn't wasted? Is this not just ugly? Even if it's very ugly in many ways, is it also perhaps beautiful? Amen. I don't want to be the one who knows so much that he cuts across all the possibilities
0: yeah amen. Well, I mean, you know it's interesting because there's many ways into a a post-doom heart and mind for some people like John Michael Greer, even the, I mean, just doom doesn't even make any sense because he so understands the rise and fall of civilizations and what contributes to the decline of unsustainable civilizations that it's sort of just right on schedule. It's like, oh, this is what happens um, in this stage of things in terms of the economic unwinding and the political unwinding. Um, And others, Catherine Ingram actually didn't like the, you know, the doom part reminded a little bit too much of you know, doom and gloomers or the Doomstead diner crowd. Um, um, but it's interesting. I, I, I tossed out to Joanna Macy, and when I was scheduling with her, uh, she's been a mentor for 30 years, and she said, do not change that name. Post-doom is precisely what our times call for. This is, what we, this is, what we, this is the conversation we need to be having right now. And um, I was grateful for that because uh, I then just had a conversation with Richard Rohr on very different religious or, you know, perspective. But he said the same thing. He said he, he he's been using ever since my first email inviting him. He uh, has been using post doom in some of his programs um, because mm. it seems to capture the essence of our time. Uh, at least what, what what many of our hearts are hungering for is something beyond the. Denial, doom. In fact, I started seeing. I just started saying this recently. I've said it in a number of these conversations. That I see doom as the midpoint between yeah. denial and regeneration. Whatever forms of regeneration happen, with or without humans, Earth will regenerate. That's a part of the nature of nature. And that uh, you know, sometimes what keeps us from going through the door of doom is is sort of the, the, the fear of what it could mean and fear of, you know, of letting go and, and surrendering. And, uh, you know, so the stages of grief leading to the doom. But if you go through the, 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 the post-doom door, or as Paul Traferka talks about it, you realize there are spheres of gratitude that expand out and um, the WASF that was on top of the door that kept you from going through it because you interpreted it as we are so do you now interpret, looking back, as we are so fortunate to be alive and to be conscious and to be heartful and to be connected, and to realize our profound, humbled by a profound uh, dependence on the larger body of life, of which we're a part and upon which we depend, and it's divine. And so,
1: and 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 yet, you see, I do still feel, um, I feel like reality exceeds every description of it, and all of our perspectives are provisional so so that that deep uh, humility leaves me willing to discover that there are i mean most of i i am not very familiar with transhumanist literature because i just find it kind of icky you know I, i just don't i'm not attracted to it but could the future of life on Earth and human life include pieces of what transhumanists are excited about? Could there be technological breakthroughs that open into new possibilities? I don't know that won't happen. Yeah, well, I mean, it's certainly... And and, and, and maybe, and, and I do know, and actually let me go a little further, part of what we will live with, no matter how profoundly ecologically centered and in integrity our lives end up being able to be, we will live into a future that will be partly shaped by new technological emergences, that we are not alone in, in knowing and shaping the future. In, in my book, I identify that there are three people, three groups of people having really serious conversations about the human future. And one of them I identify as ecologists who are listening to indigenous wisdom and and deep ecology. You know, another group are what I call the innovators. And these are the dominant folks who are, who are having, you know, some, they're trying to create a future with scientific advances and entrepreneurial efforts and all that. And they're the they ones with all the power and the money and the dominance in the mainstream culture, and they've delivered a lot of the, you know. But the, but the, but they are, they are they are serious. So many of them do care about a positive future, however distorted their presumptions might be. And we will live in a future they will partly create. And then I identify another group that I call the evolutionaries, who are the people who are evolving their own consciousness, the spiritual practitioners, the people who are, and and the integral effort, which identifies that there are different stages of meaning making that are more nuanced or complex or dimensional that evolve out of old ones. And it may be that there are fruits that can be born of that process, which Yes, right now in their expressions, they tend to be out of integrity, out of deep felt lived relationship with the natural world. There are distortions even in that world, but it's not necessarily so that an appreciation for what can evolve in higher states and stages of human consciousness are not potentially profoundly co-creative and determinative, potentially, you know, could be determinative of of a different kind of future that would be more enlightened, more awake to the divine nature of it all, more alive as that creativity and a basis for a different kind of human relationship. So I think that these three groups who generally, there's a little bit of conversation between ecologists and evolutionaries, but Innovators tend to think they're the only people with a valid point of view. But I, I think that the future, the best future we can have, can only come out of dialogue that emerges from cross sector communication. Everybody's got these assumptions. They're so sure of something that makes the other person irrelevant or wrong or, or morally deficient or something so that they don't have to engage. Let me challenge you michael your your certainties i just want you to be looser in all of your certainties i i think uh i don't think we knew each other then uh but uh maybe it was jeff salzman i'm not sure somebody some, one of our mutual friends told me that you had been really into the y two k situation and and that you know you were wrong about that.
0: I was the city organizer for the city of Portland, Oregon. I was the Y2K. I was, I was massively involved in Y2K. Yes, thank you.
1: Right. And and, 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 and you know, some of what made that a non-problem was that people mobilized to make sure it wasn't. But you probably were also wrong to some degree.
0: Oh, I was absolutely and, wrong.
1: <laughs> and so whatever the, the in, you know, the intuitive hunch structures inside your own being that helped get you to think you knew about that, well, some of them are probably still operating. And and if, if you can be with your, I mean, there are so many dimensions of what you bring that educate me that are humble and big hearted and wise and all the rest. But if you can factor that in and have a little bit of that additional self skepticism and epistemic humility you'll just do the good work you're already doing with even more integrity and in more it'll be more durable and it'll have more vision that that's really
0: i can receive that brother i can receive that yeah if i've I've had to remind my family and friends uh occasionally (laughs) when i come off a little a little too doomy or a little too sobering or a little too scary or whatever it's like Hey, I have been catastrophically wrong in the past, so
1: let's
0: just, let's, let's just remember that.
1: <laughs> well, y- y- you know, it, it's it's funny. I in In many contexts, most of my life contexts, I'm like the guy they don't want to invite to the party because I'm just going to talk about the civilizational predicament and the moment of truth and all the rest. And so I'm sort of this yeah the, the 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 let's not visualize it but i can't i can't hold back from it- i'm you know called the turd in the punch bowl right that's well not... that's
0: okay at least you still i mean i don't get a, i don't you're the only integral leader that still has conversations with me of any
1: depth <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> and i don't get invited to speak in those settings anymore yeah right <laughs> understandably
1: well, well th- th- in most contexts, that's how I'm perceived. And and I listen to the fact that I'm perceived that way because what it is for us to cope adequately with all that we're having to deal with does require an even more robust intuition of the incredibly blessed nature of every moment and a kind of rejoicing. You know, was I, like I decided that I, you know, that those great lines from that Drew Dillinger poem. It's 3:23 in the morning and I can't sleep. I keep hearing the voices of my great-great-grandchildren calling to me, asking me, what were you doing when the planet when the planet was unraveling? What were you doing when the animals were dying? Once you knew, what did you do? And I ended up feeling, well, I don't know why exactly. I can't I can't really redeem my relationship to my great-grandchildren. I have already grown up in a middle-class lifestyle. I'm adapted to most of that. I'm still living in much more humble and simple circumstances than I used to, but still, you know, with, with an automobile and uh, consumption, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm an American. And, and yet, I decided I would rather risk my security. I would rather do things that, to some degree, are Hail Mary passes to try to help the future of life. I'd rather be a casualty and have some integrity in that conversation than protect my own well-being. Well, have I veered too far in that direction? Maybe to some degree. Maybe, maybe that that there was a kind of uh inflation in the you know heroic and I imagined myself more of a hero than I really could be. And I took risks and maybe if I had been a little more self-protected I could Uh, Have be be more effective now. I'd have more money. I would have been less uh, oriented to transformation now. I mean, but look, we're having this conversation while both the Arctic and the Amazon are burning. Mm -hmm. We're having this conversation in a world in which things have speeded up far more Mm -hmm. than anybody expected. I had a conversation yesterday with Karen O'Brien, one of the co-recipients of the Nobel Peace Prize that was given to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. She's been involved in that work all along. And she, too, is confessing how much she and the other IPCC scientists have been surprised by just how fast the changes have accelerated. Yeah. It's not good to panic, but it's kind of not good to just be so committed to refusing to panic that you don't <laughs> into what the hell is happening. Uh, there's lots to be afraid of at a certain level, and it's realistic to know that you're not immune to those things. Mm-hmm. And, and it's only when you're in that touch that you're capable of the right kind of compassion for anybody else.
0: Yeah. Amen. Well, I mean, for me, it, it's in large part coming to terms, I've sort of lived this way for many years, actually a few decades. But it's just sort of a mental game that I've played, that if I can be at peace, with whatever I fear is the worst case scenario, and genuinely be at peace with it. Like, if that happens, that's God, that's reality. And can I be with that? And then I imagine that and I hold it in my heart and I imagine that that worst case scenario actually unfolds until I can actually breathe with that. Then it has no power over me at all. And then I can be engaged in whatever work that I'm doing and it. It almost never is the worst case scenario anyway, no matter what I'm fearing. Um, and I've done that with our species. Uh, it seems to me that whether we go extinct in the next 10 years due to abrupt climate change and the complete white wigging out of of uh, the Arctic uh, and methane and whatever, or whether we last 5 million years before an asteroid or a super volcano takes us out, it's probably going to be in that range. And by not having any fear that it could be on the near side of that, then I'm able to keep a big heart and as passionately engaged as I can to make whatever difference I can and to support others in making the difference they can. Um, So, yeah, I... I, um, uh, My faith is in life. Yeah. My faith is in evolution. My faith is in ecology. It's like, that's my trust. My trust is deeply grounded there and it's no longer human centered. And yeah, I would love to see our species survive. I'd love to see not just Homo sapiens survive. I'd love to see some form of technologically oriented humans survive. And I need to have the humility to believe that that's possible, no question. And yet, even if that's not possible, what I do today, what I do tomorrow, what I do next week is probably gonna be the same, which is have meaningful, heartful conversations with men I love like you. And I just yeah. had a conversation with with Barbara Cecil earlier that was just freaking awesome, you know. And, and and to have meaningful conversations about things that really matter, to love each other, to actually not just tolerate our differences, but to celebrate our differences, because that's where things are interesting. And to, make them, anyway.
1: to make of them something creative. Yeah, yeah. Make them in a way that opens possibility. Yeah. You know, when I feel into it, it blows my mind that I, I genuinely can see trajectories. Everything. Thing from very near-term horrific extinction to every gradation in between, yeah. all the way to a relatively, I mean, this is going to be a fair amount of death and suffering and confusion ahead no matter what, but in the midst of that, a lot of beautiful emergence and the potential for us to navigate this evolutionary squeeze point and to keep evolving and what would another million or more years of cultural evolution and development of everything best in us actually produce That, that, that I actually, and you are, we are given in our lifetimes, the Hubble telescope sent us those pictures, the, the, the billions of galaxies and quadrillions of suns and who knows how many planets and all the rest, all of that came into view. If, the story of evolution is the story of in in my way of telling it you know if you leave hydrogen and helium alone long enough they eventually become all the beautiful plants and creatures and forests and ecosystems and they build cathedrals and they write symphonies and they put telescopes into orbit and they wonder about the meaning of it all and they become love, and they celebrate the inherent, vibrant divinity of existence, and they do all that, nature of this is conscious of itself, if if that's what it was doing, it was wanting to become self-aware all along, in some sense. Some people don't like the teleological interpretation, I get that, you know, you've got your skeptic friends, but to me, if you just look at all of that, something went that way instead of that way, it wanted to do that. And if that's the case, then this beautiful phrase of our recently deceased friend Barbara's, Barbara Mark Subbert, the eyes of evolution. We are the eyes of evolution, seeing itself with a granularity it never had before in a time in which... Perhaps this particular experiment is self-terminating or morphing profoundly and perhaps going into some new direction. And it needs more than I am. It needs more than you are. It needs, it needs everything that's beautiful in our friendship and everything that's beautiful in the best work you have ever done and Connie has ever done and I have ever done and Carolyn has ever done. It needs every bit of the best we've ever done and more more, 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 more. And we are in the presence of that teleological pull that's asking for us, yes, to be so profoundly grateful that we can feel the tension of an ask that goes beyond our capacity and not just be stressed out by it. And for that to be the the fabric of, of 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 a kind of vibrance in our friendship and our connections and our conversations, and wow, yeah, wow,
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, amen, wow, yeah. Hmm. Well, I'm quite sure Connie will want to end it there. <laughs> 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 This has been a post-Doom conversation. For more audios and videos of post-Doom conversations and other resources along these lines, go to postdoom.com.